This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. It's already Friday. That means this is the final day of the week for the Word to Stand Up for Life. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering Bible questions, asking questions about things that are going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart, all you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 if you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. If you uh, would rather email your question, you can email questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send them to us that way. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app uh, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else can be hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. It's Friday, so uh, we're going to be having church tonight. I'm going to be teaching Ephesians chapter 2, the first seven verses, one of the great chapters in all of our Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. And I especially enjoy uh, the first two studies. I'll get just uh, the first seven verses tonight, and then uh, 8, 9, and 10 in our study next week, and uh, how rich, what a treasure it is. People always say, what's your favorite book? And I say Ephesians. Uh, In large part, these 10 verses are the reason why. Well, let's get to some questions while we await your phone calls. Uh, Jenny says, Pastor Ron, what is the difference between hating the sin and hating the sinner? Well, Jenny, the difference is perspective, I guess. If you are the sinner, um, then, then you know, if they hate your sin, it's what you're committed to doing, then you're going to assume that they hate you too. Um, this is a, a, a really trite Christian saying that we probably ought not to practice. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. We need to remember that unbelievers, those who are lost in their sin, they don't disassociate themselves from their sin. It's who they are. I was born this way. I've always been this way. And I'm referring to homosexuality, but it could be any number of things. So God always hates sin because sin separates from God. But we need to always remember that God loves the sinner. And there's a lot better ways to approach people who don't know Christ with the gospel than, than throwing out those sort of poor Christian platitudes. So, Jenny, um, I don't know what perspective you're asking this question from, but if you are separated from Christ by your sin, I want you to know he loves you. 
He loves you endlessly so much that he emptied heaven to win your heart. And all you have to do is ask Jesus to forgive you and surrender your life to him. That's what it means to be born again. But please don't let what anybody said convince you that God hates you because you sin. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever, everybody's has the same opportunity, Jenny, that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. You know, one of the hard things I have a hard time convincing people of is how much God loves them. You know, we live with ourselves. We know the things that we've done. We know the things that we do, the, the things that we fail in even now. And because we're hard on ourselves, in fact, we're much harder on ourselves than God ever would be. And we have a tendency to downplay, how could God love me? I've done this or I've done that. I'm so guilty. But he loves you and he proved it once and for all. And if we who are believers, I'm just talking about believers now. This show is listened to primarily by believers. If we who are believers would really just settle once and forever this concept that God loves you, it would change your life for time and eternity, but it would change your life. So God loves you, and the reason he hates sin is because it prevents him from having a relationship with you. Well, that's why he sent Jesus, so that we could have a relationship with God who loves us, giving him a chance to prove over and over and over how much he loves us. Last thought on this, Jenny, is that, that God sent his son should be all the proof we ever, know, ever need. It shouldn't matter whether we feel like God loves us. It shouldn't matter whether we feel like we're close or we don't feel like we're close. It shouldn't matter if we feel super guilty or, or condemned. That one act of sending his son to die on the cross for your sins and mine, it pleased God to crush Jesus because he thought you were worth it. He loves you that much. Good question, Jenny. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Amos. Uh, what is your position on churches defying state orders to remain open? Uh, well, Amos, my first position is thank God that we live in Texas. I mean, my goodness. Um, I don't have to worry about people taking me to court for contempt. Um, I don't have to worry about people coming in closing. Our governor and our attorney general has given us the authority to do what our Constitution says that we can do. So uh, that's the first thought I have on on this. Now, this is a really, really difficult um, question because for me it's impossible to understand why any pastor would close their church just because the state or local authorities tell them to. I've said this before in answer to similar questions. You know, if you close the doors of the church, you close the doors of hope. And we live in a time where hope is needed perhaps more than anything else now. I mean, people are afraid. People are tired of the monotony of being semi-quarantined. We're tired of having our faces covered by masks. We come to church, we're tired of not being able to hug people. I mean, this is what the body of Christ does. And, um, you know, when, when this quarantine thing started, uh, Amos, in, um, back in, in, I think, the first part of March, um, I think we were closed nine weeks. Um, all of the 
theories on how severe this illness would be, this virus would be. Um, it would be millions of Christians, of people rather, who died because of it. That it was going to simply ravage the population, and that stuff just not happened. At the beginning, we closed because it was what they asked us to do. Romans 13 said that we should submit to the orders of God. But then it just kept going and going and going. Now, I'm going to speak from the perspective, Amos, of a couple of friends of mine in California. Uh, one of them with a church about the church of our size. Um, I think he's got 1,400 people or so adults that go to his church. And the other one, a mega church, both Calvary chapels. Uh, and, and, and they've remained open in defiance of Governor Newsom's orders. And they're being taken to court for contempt. It's costing them a lot of money. There's always a threat hanging over their head of fines per incident of violation. And, um, um, you know, they've determined that they're never going to close the doors to the house of God. And Amos, I can't see any other position. Something that we've got to understand. This is what God has commanded us to. You know, church, and, and one of the arguments that, that people have offered is, well, you know, we can still, the gospel's not chained. The gospel can go out. We can still do live stream. That's not what church is. Church is much more than just the Bible study. Now, certainly we study the Bible at church. But church is a lot more than a Bible study. Church is fellowship. Church is a, an opportunity to use the gifts that God has given you to bless other believers. Church is a place where we can bring unbelievers and they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can tell you there's not going to be unbelievers listening to my live stream. But our church actively brings friends, family members, co-workers. I got one guy who picks people up off the street and brings them to church. That's what church is supposed to be. It's a beacon of hope. It's light in the middle of darkness. And as for me, Amos, I can't imagine allowing the authority, even at the risk of having to go to jail, as is the case with two of my friends. I cannot imagine closing the doors of the house of God. Now, having said that, I know some other pastors who've closed their churches and have tried to find new, more creative ways with technology to spread the gospel. And they, I assume, believe they're doing the right thing. I couldn't disagree more, and yet who am I to judge another man's servant? So my position, Amos, is only relevant to what it says for Calvary Chapel of San Antonio and we're not going to close if one person shows up hopefully we'll worship God we'll teach the Bible and I'll preach it just like there was a thousand in the sanctuary but these doors aren't going to close here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio I hope that answers your question and pray for the pastors, especially those in California who are being literally harassed, targeted by state and local governments because unbelievers don't think church is essential. It's okay for people to go out in the streets and protest. They don't do anything about that. It's okay for casinos to be open. It's okay for 
people to go to the grocery stores. But you can't go to church. There's just something not right about that. You know, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. But I can tell you one conspiracy that the Bible teaches very clearly, and that's the conspiracy of Satan who is behind all of this. And he is moving the strings of these puppets, those who are governors, and, and while they don't know they're being used by the devil and would bristle against the idea, believe me, they are tools in the hands of Satan, who is the prince, the little pea prince, the ruler of the air. He's the one who's in charge. And the church needs to be the church. So Amos, that's the best I've got on that. Gina, this is an appropriate question after what I just talked about. She says, why are pastors held to a higher standard of judgment? This isn't for salvation, right? Yeah, Gina, it's not for salvation. Um, Pastors are held to a higher standard of judgment for the way they live. To whom much is given, Jesus said, much is required. And the idea there, excuse me, the idea there is that... um, we're held to a stricter accountability level for living what we know. I hope that makes sense to you. You know, as a pastor, I understand the Word of God. Uh, I, I, I teach others what it says, what it means, and how they can apply it in their lives. Now, if I'm not applying that standard in my own life, well, I'm more, I'm more accountable than the people that I'm teaching. And so that's what James means when he says that we're held to a higher standard of judgment. It's not for salvation, and that judgment will occur at the Bema Seat of Christ uh, when we receive or lose the rewards because of our ministry. Now, one other comment here, Gina, about this, that it's not just going to be at the Bema Seat of Christ that we're judged and lose rewards. There, There are consequences here on earth. I personally believe that God deals with pastors uh, more harshly when they sin. I believe he deals with them quickly. God is patient. He's abounding in love. Uh, He's a compassionate God. We know all of that. But I think when one of his servants stands in the pulpit, and I'm talking about somebody who really belongs to him, there's a lot of false teachers who don't belong to him at all. But I think when one of us who tells other people how to live their lives when we're living a duplicitous life behind the scenes. Well, let's just say I've seen a lot of those men be judged by circumstances. And their sin gets exposed and their sin finds them out. So, Gina, that's why they're held to a higher standard. Uh, Pray for your, your pastor. Pray for me, Gina. Um, that shouldn't scare us. It should thrill us. We should, as as uh, ambassadors for the Lord, as spokesmen, uh, when we open our Bibles and stand in the pulpit, we should be willing to embrace the idea that we can't stand before people with that kind of hypocrisy going on in our lives. Good question, Gina. Thank you very, very much. We're inside five minutes now. The phones have been quiet. We love your live calls at 340-9585. Speaking of that, we've got Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you, Jimmy. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, Hey, uh, wasn't the Roman Empire the same way with uh, the churches back in those days? 
Jimmy, the, the the Roman Empire didn't uh, close the churches; they just killed the Christians. I mean, it was uh, the persecution from Rome towards Christians, especially as we get into the lives of of Peter and Paul and and the others. The the, the Roman Emperor was Caesar Nero, and um, uh, you know he used Christians uh, for sport. He he would 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 throw them to the lion's den. Uh, he would light them, uh, pitch them in tar, and light them and use them as candles in his courtyard because he liked to hear the screams uh, as their flesh burned. Uh, but yeah, there was always persecution, and they were always walking around. And, and, and that's the way the church started. Now, the good thing about it is it was always when a church is being persecuted. I believe the same thing is happening now, Jimmy. Uh, when the church is being persecuted, that's when the church grows the most. And I don't mean an individual church, but I mean the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, the one thing that we've always got to remember is that uh, when we are willing to lose our life for his sake, Jesus says we find it. Now, we're not at that place yet, at least not yet, where we're risking our lives for serving Christ. But we're on the edge of getting in trouble legally. I believe that we're on the edge of having uh, a lot of what we teach just by teaching through the Bible declared hate speech. Uh, And and I believe the authorities aren't going to rest until they stamp out the church. And, and, um, you know, they're not going to be successful. The gates of hell, Jesus said, will not prevail against the church. But um, the rapture of the church is coming soon, Jimmy. And when that happens... Um, then evil is going to prevail because his church will be out of the way. Does that make sense to you? Yes, sir. I'm not afraid. You know, Jimmy, when, when Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. And it's almost like, especially as it relates to these last days, Jesus is drawing a line in the spiritual sand, and he's, and he's challenging us, what side of the line are you on? And going back to the first question we had about, the, the, about my position on, on opening or closing churches uh, in defiance of, of the, the, the state's orders, um, I wouldn't want to be on the other side, frankly. If Jesus comes back, I wouldn't want to have to answer for why I closed his church. When he said, when he opens the door, no one can close it. When he closes the door, no one can open it. And he tells the church of Philadelphia, and that's um, a, an important church to, to aspire to in these last days. Uh, he said, I've set before you an open door. And where to keep that door open? So, Jimmy, yeah, I, I, I think it was a lot more brutal for the first century church. Um, Christians really, really struggled then. Um, they would forfeit their lives. The, the, the apostles knew that they were going to sacrifice their lives in service for the Lord. Um, and I don't think we're at that point yet, but I, I can surely see us getting there in the not-too-distant future. Jesus said, um, for the sake of the elect... Now, he's speaking of Israel specifically in the Olivet Discourse. But the same thing is true for us. For the sake of we who are born-again believers, 
Uh, he is the power behind the church until that moment when the church is taken out of the way. Thank you, Jimmy. I appreciate it very, very much. Have a great weekend. Uh, thanks for the call. Where am I on time? You're doing great. Okay. Over five. Oh, I thought I had... No. Oh, okay. I saw something wrong. I thought we had five minutes a little while ago, and we had more time than that. Okay. Here's a question from Rick. He says, how is an unbelieving spouse sanctified in a marriage to a believer? Rick, that phrase in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians has always been difficult for people to understand. Uh, the word sanctified, remember, it means set apart. And when, when a, a, a believer is married to an unbeliever, and that believer is praying for their unbelieving spouse. They're literally setting them apart by prayer. So it's not sanctified like the process of sanctification where every day we're more like Jesus. That's a, 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 a theological term that applies to believers. But the unbelieving spouse is set aside. And children in a marriage are set aside for the very same reason. And Rick, I'm a perfect example of that uh, because I'm um, uh, Paula prayed for me for 13 years. And um, when, um, if I was God, I would have given up on me. Uh, Paula's prayers, her faithfulness to hang in there when other people told her to divorce me. Paula's willingness to hang in there out of obedience to Christ. No other reason. Certainly wasn't her love for me. It was out of obedience for Jesus because she loved Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And she knew that he was setting before her a choice. If you love me, this is what you'll do. If you don't love me, then do what you're going to do. But she made the right choice, and I was set apart. And while I was stubborn and suffered a lot and caused a lot of pain for Paula and for others. The truth is that Paula's prayers set me apart and they are the reason why I'm doing this radio show, the reason why I've had the privilege of pastoring Calvary Chapel of San Antonio for 25 years. So that's how it's done. It's not saved. God will never override somebody's free will. But believe me, when you're an unbelieving man or woman married to a believing man or a woman, I promise you, if they're praying for you, and no doubt they are, then God is going to make life really, really difficult. And so the idea is just humble yourself before he has to do it. Good question. Here's a question from Greg. He says, how can Christians be here during the Great Tribulation when we are not appointed to wrath? Greg, uh, we can't. We won't be here uh, during the Great Tribulation. Uh, when Paul writing to the churches at Thessalonica, we have been appointed unto salvation rather than having an appointment for wrath. And I think a lot of times when people are trying to support a post-tribulation rapture or even a mid-tribulation rapture, a pre-wrath rapture, I think what they're doing, they're forgetting that, that the Great Tribulation from the Old Testament through Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, the Great Tribulation is God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And so we cannot be here, Greg, because if we did, then, then God would be unjust in judging us. 
we haven't rejected Jesus Christ. Now, I've had people say to me, they say, well, well um, Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation. Yeah, he did, but gratefully he didn't say we would have great tribulation. He just said we would have tribulation, a completely different thing uh, theologically altogether. So um, I, I hope I didn't say anything that confused you in an earlier program, Greg. Uh, I have been one of the firmest proponents of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church that you're ever going to find. And, and um, we simply cannot be here. Uh, on this coming Wednesday, uh, I'm going to be teaching the back half of Genesis 19, and we're going to show you a picture of a believer being snatched away before judgment comes. And that's exactly what's uh, going to happen with we who are believers. Uh, when Jesus says enough, and the Father says, go get your bride, we're going to be snatched away in an instant, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be caught up to be with Jesus together in the air. And then he's going to take us to our marriage supper. So, Greg, I'm, I'm sure I didn't say anything that would suggest that, but Christians cannot be here during the Great Tribulation. It would be a violation of God's character, of His nature. Uh, quite simply, um, we're going to go be with Jesus before the Great Tribulation begins. You've got it right. We've got 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word of Standing for Life. We love your calls and questions. May the Lord bless you. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, our final half hour of the week. I apologize. I almost signed off at the end of the first half. Just I can't see, and I thought we said five minutes, and then I just kind of got flustered. So, um to you, Rachel, at the studio, I'm sorry. You're doing right. I'm the one who messed up. Let's get back to the questions while we await your phone calls. Jason says, are prosperity teachers really Christians? Jason, in most cases, my guess would be no, they're not. Um, we always have to make a, a distinction between method and motive. Um, if, if somebody is teaching the prosperity gospel, because they genuinely believe it to be true. Maybe that's the kind of church they grew up in. That's what they were taught. Uh, I have a friend uh, uh, who uh, is a really nice guy and loves Jesus, but he had been taught so um, clearly that, no, if God, if, if you belong to God, he wants you to have the best of everything in this world. And, and uh, while I believe with all of my heart he was saved, he was so wrong and he's going to be judged for those beliefs. Now that, I think, represents a small number of prosperity teachers. 
I think most of them have found out how to make money. Um, they, they, they've learned how easy we Christians are to scam, and that's what they're doing. So uh, all I can say, Jason, God knows those who are his. He will not be mocked. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And I think there's going to be a whole lot of prosperity teachers like the ones Jesus was talking about, the religious leaders, when he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And he will say, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? But Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform miracles? Didn't we, didn't I have a big church? All those things. And Jesus will say, depart from me, you doer of iniquity. I don't believe most of them are Christians. The good thing, um, Jason, is I don't have to make that judgment. God knows their heart. God knows their motive. And uh, I think we who have the responsibility to teach, I said earlier to a question in the first half, that teachers are held to a stricter judgment than others. I think uh, the, the prosperity teacher, man or woman, who is teaching others, causing little ones to stumble, is going to find themselves facing the wrath of God. So... Jason, you and I, we don't have to judge. God has already got this. Miriam says, Pastor, and how should parents deal with the changing morals in the world as it relates to the things kids are taught in school? Miriam, I could spend a whole hour's program on this one thing. Uh, I think I read this on the program. I know I sent it to my pastors. There was a uh, um, a, a teacher in Philadelphia, uh, a middle school teacher, and he was um, on Twitter, you know, just just exposing himself for the whole world to see. And he was saying uh, that his biggest concern for this online education that so many school districts are going through now is that parents would be looking over the shoulders of what their children are being taught. And he said, you know, we depend on the anonymity. We depend on hiding those things so that we can deal with kids from homophobic or hateful families. And we want to be able to mold them, make them pliable. And if the kids if, if the kids are, are being watched by the parents and they hear the things that we're teaching, we're not going to be able to do that. Now, Miriam, I'm pretty old. And, and I never believed that we that I would live in a world like that. I mean, I've been saved for 29 years. And, um, um, uh, you, you know, when I got saved, it was right and it was wrong. But, but that's not the case now. So to your question, how should parents deal with changing morals? Remember that God never changes. Remember, Miriam, that you're the watchman on the wall in your home, you and your husband. You're the watchman on the wall, and when you see something that's not right, you've got to call it out, and you've got to equip your children to deal with it as well. I'll just go back to the teaching on evolution that's been throughout my whole lifetime. People are so convinced, so brainwashed, that nobody even questions that anymore. And if we don't prepare our children to deal with that kind of teaching by the time they get into school, well, imagine their confusion about our faith. We tell them that we're sons and daughters of the king. And school tells them that we're descendants from 
apes. That explains why the world acts like apes. So we've got to be the ones who will take a stand in our home with regard to morality. Miriam, we've got to, and this is a pet peeve of mine and hardly anybody listens. Christian parents have got to monitor, if not completely restrict, our children's exposure to social media. It's that simple. You know, teenagers do not need cell phones. They're carrying around computers. We let our children go into their rooms and sit on their telephones all night long. And not only are they not getting enough sleep, but we're exposing them to something likened to a ticking time bomb because they're going to find stuff that's designed by the devil to destroy them. And I've had so many parents come to me, well, Pastor Ron, how can I say no? All the other kids have one. You explain to your daughter or to your son that you're going to stand before God for your stewardship just over them, not for any other kid, and this is the way it's going to be. And then as your children learn, as they grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, then when it becomes necessary, you allow them to have a phone. But never, ever, without you having complete and total access to it. Remember, God doesn't change. We can't change either. God is looking for parents who will stand for Him. Parents who love God so much that they don't really care in comparison relatively what their kids think of them. Kids don't need friends. Kids need moms and dads. So that's how we ought to deal with changing morals. God's morals never change. He makes it so easy for us, Miriam, that all we have to do is stay the course. And remember this one thing. Everybody's a parent in this audience. Remember that you're going to stand before God and He's going to say, how did you do when I give you stewardship over? And your children are going to be there. Your, your spouse is going to be there. Your children are going to be there. How did you do? Well, I wanted him or I wanted her to be happy. I, I, all the other kids got phones. All the other kids dressed a certain way. All the other kids were having sex. All the other kids, whatever follows that in your house, Jesus has given us the way to live. And he expects us as Christian parents to follow his word. So Miriam, I hope that makes sense and I'll keep the answer to that because otherwise I could be here for a very, very long time. I'm going to be uh, not this Sunday, but the following Sunday. I'm going to be touching on this and then the Sunday after that in Second Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to really, really be digging into the very thing, the the, the time that we live in, Miriam. So um, you can kind of put that on your calendar as well. 340-9585, Paul, a political question. He says, can a Christian vote for a pro-abortion candidate when the other candidate is also immoral? Gee, Paul, I can't imagine what you might be talking about here. Um, let me be, I want to be realistic first. There are Christians who will vote for 
committed pro-abortion candidates. There are actually Christians, Paul, who are Democrats. Now, one should think about this. When you are voting for a Democrat, and I'm talking about not an individual, I'm talking about their platform. They're committed to tearing down the family. They're committed to killing children in the womb. They're committed to advancing a homosexual transgender lifestyle. Every single tenant of their platform is anti-God. So answer that question for yourself. How can we vote for a platform that is completely in opposition to God? So I don't know. Now, having said that, I had a question yesterday. I think it was yesterday the day before. Uh, how can people get divorced when the Bible says don't divorce? So they do it because they want to. Uh, there are going to be Christians who vote for a pro-abortion candidate because they hate the president that we have. So, Paul, I think what we do is we decide which of the candidates most closely represents a platform that Jesus could say amen to. And I can't imagine casting a vote for a pro-abortion candidate. I cannot imagine. I'm not a one-issue voter. But how would you explain to Jesus that you pull the lever, and that's how old I am, um, you pull the lever for a candidate who is committed to murdering children in the womb? How could you do that? So I don't know. Christians do, real Christians do, and they will again. However, I think I can say with clarity that when they do that, they do it with complete and total disregard for the heart of Jesus toward these things. Now, let me deal with the other side of this, Paul, because it is equally difficult. When we have a candidate who is demonstrably an immoral man, a man who says and does mean things, unkind things, a man who has lived a life of sexual immorality, a man who has been caught on hot mics saying awful things, aren't we hypocrites if we vote for him? Remember, we're not electing a pastor, we're electing a government official, and I think it's one of those times when we have to say, the lesser of two evils is. Or, we can vote our conscience and write in any one of our choice. I think we all ought to vote. Having said that, there's times when deciding who we're going to vote for is really going to be difficult. Look at the platforms of the parties. Forget the individuals, forget the personalities. Look at the platforms of the parties and make a choice. Which platform most closely represents the heart of God? And since your question was specifically about abortion, we can immediately disqualify anyone who would justify or advance killing 
innocent children. I think that one's a pretty easy one, Paul. Let's go to the phone lines. We've got Reuben from Seguin. Reuben, good to hear from you. You are on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. It's good to speak to you again on this beautiful Friday. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Reuben. Like, like always, I want to thank you and uh, your church and uh, for praying for me. Um, Dad is in a nursing home, and uh, I got a phone call from him yesterday. Uh, he was... Uh, they have to put him in 14-day quarantine, not because he has mm-hmm. the virus, but it's just mandatory. So he yeah. got out, and he finally got a, a roommate, and he calls me, and he was so excited. He was a son. <laughs> he told me Spanish. He was like, son, son, guess what? I said, what, Dad? He goes, I have a, I have a, a, a roommate, and his name is Mr. Clark, and he is so cool. Guess what he's watching right now? I said, what? He goes, he's watching Gunsmoke, and that's like my dad's favorite. So I just want to thank God because I'm over here worried about him, and then I'm worried about me. But then God spoke to me yesterday through that, through a TV show. And he told me, he said, Ruben, look at your dad. If I take care of your dad, and I, I gave him a roommate that's watching Gunsmoke, and that's going to be beneficial for his health and his morale and his mental health. He goes, how much more do you not think I won't do the same for you? And then he took me to the scripture where he talks about the birds, the feeding the birds of the air and the fowl of the ground. And, and, I, was, and, and I was taken back by, by, by the word of God and, and just the word. Because John 1 and 1, it says, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm-hmm. So everything he speaks to me, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and though right now it seems impossible what I'm about to face these next coming weeks, it seems impossible God spoke to me yesterday and says, Reuben, look, look how happy your dad sounded. He didn't even sound worried. He didn't sound perturbed or anything. He was just laughing away like a kid. And then he called, he told me this, because I bought him a 27-pack of, uh, of uh, peanut butter, peanut butter cra- uh, crackers. He goes, hey, uh, can, can I share the crackers with my, like, like if I'm the father, and I'm like, I said, Dad, you can do whatever you want to do with them, Dad. And I said, yeah, so he and Mr. Clark are real good friends. But I, I wanted to share that little part with maybe somebody who might be going through something that, I've, that I'm going through, the same thing, and they feel that there's no hope, that they don't see how they're going to do it. Look at God talking through a movie. I mean, and that's about as simple as I can put it. Yeah, you know, Reuben, in, in, in the 14th verse of John chapter 1, after, after that statement that you quoted, it says, And the Word dwelt among us, and the Word there is tabernacled, lived with us. And, and, and that's just your, your comfort is knowing that Jesus is dwelling with your father and his new roommate right now. So while they're, they're left alone, at least from a worldly perspective, they're never alone. They're never alone, and God is taking care of people. We have uh, 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 some families, one in particular, who's elderly parents, who, who um, one of them's not doing well physically anyway. 
and he just tested positive for uh, for COVID nineteen uh, in the Bay Area. And um, we've been praying for them. And, you know, family can't go there and be with them, as you understand how difficult that is. And yet Jesus is there, and he's dwelling among them. And uh, he's got your dad, and, and he's got you. So good for you, Reuben. Thank you. Have a blessed day. You too. God bless you. I love that. Keep praying for Reuben and his father. Sometimes we find out that the really hard things, the things that we don't think we can possibly survive, um, those are the times when we get to know the hand of the Lord the best. Here's a question from Victoria. She says, three divorce questions. My husband left me and wants a divorce. I refuse to give him one. Will God bring him back to me? Um, well, I only got two questions in there, uh, Victoria, but I, I assume the second question is, are you right to refuse to give him one? Um, a, a couple of things. There's nothing that we can do. When, when somebody that God has given free will, when they exercise that free will to do that which breaks God's heart, and in this case, Victoria, it also breaks your heart, there's really nothing that we can really do. Refusing to give him a divorce isn't really going to help you at all. The Bible says if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. That's Paul writing to the church at Corinth. So if he leaves, um, I know how painful it is, but you making it difficult to give him a divorce is only going to cause you more pain and more heartache. Now, as to the question, will God bring him back to you? The answer is probably no, because God knows, and forgive me for being personal here, but God knows he's a jerk. We humans are jerks. And God is not going to bring somebody back to you who's going to cause you pain. And that's why there's really no value in you holding on to this. If he's left you, he wants a divorce, I'm assuming there's somebody else involved. Don't let your anger at him turn into bitterness because it will devour you pray for him pray for him continually pray for your marriage to be restored but always at the end of that put nevertheless thy will O God not mine be done I know it seems sometimes like we're just giving up and we're going to lose but you never lose when you're with Jesus and I would ask you, Victoria, to take this opportunity to, to, to learn more about Jesus than you've ever learned. Make reading your Bible an essential part of your day every day. Develop a deeper prayer relationship with Him. Get to know Him better by talking to Him. Right now, in the situation you're in, you have only one husband, Jesus. So invest all of your time and your energy in Him. Again, pray for your husband. Pray that he gets saved. Now people say, well, what if he's a believer? Believers don't act like this. Real believers don't act like this. So pray for him. But what you might find is that your life is a whole lot freer to know Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to get to know Him better without this man than it ever was with Him. If we could force them to do what the Bible says, Victoria, that would be one thing. We can't do this. 
So don't refuse to give them a divorce. Make it easy. Make sure that uh, distribution of assets is equitable. There's just nothing else you can do. Um, if he were the one calling and answering the question, then I would I would say, don't do this, don't do this. But the truth is, he's going to do it anyway. 340-9585. I think we're getting pretty close to running out of time here. We've got a, an email from uh, an anonymous female. Could you lose your salvation if you love a married man? I think God sent him to me. I was divorced against my will before, and now this man, married man has come into my life, and we're in love with each other, but he's married. Uh, I think God, but I think God brought us together. Is my salvation at stake? Um, you know, anonymous female, um, you could not be more wrong about God. Is it even possible the God that we serve is holy and just, who uses marriage as a, as a symbol of the, the, the human relationship that is closest to him. Is it possible that God would destroy another marriage to bring you happiness? This is sin, pure and simple. And whether or not your salvation is at stake depends on how you can answer honestly this question. If you are a Christian, you cannot do this. If you go ahead and do it, you're going to demonstrate that you're really not a Christian. You have no right to be in love with somebody who belongs to somebody else. This man is not sent to you by God. He is a snake, a trap. And you have to know that God would never bring somebody to you who would so desperately misrepresent him. So could you lose your salvation? If you're ever really saved, you can't lose your salvation. But this may be one of those times, Anonymous, when you're going to find out if you ever really were saved. If you love Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have to break off this relationship right now. Not tomorrow. Not after you think about it. Not after you shed a lot of tears. Right now. Now, it is sinful to be in love with somebody who belongs to someone else. I cannot be more direct than that. So if you're a Christian, you cannot do this. If you're a Christian, you will not do this. If you do this anyway, then I would ask you what makes you think you're a Christian. Not a good way to end the week. Well, we're inside the last minute tonight. I'm going to be teaching Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 2, the first seven verses. I'm going to be teaching Second Timothy, uh, the, the final few verses of chapter 2 on Sunday. And we'd love to see you. Uh, if you can't get here, you can watch online at calvaryessay.com. And uh, have a great week. Wherever it is you go to church, find somebody who needs to be loved on and love them. Hey, thanks for tuning in this week. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up For Life. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On For Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On For Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.